Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane. I got to set the scene for you guys right now. I am at Daytona International Speedway. It is in the middle of media day on Wednesday, February 16th. I am outside. There is a wind in the air. This may sound a little bit different, maybe a little lesser audio quality than normal and i can tell you why my recorder has died uh it died mid-interview with bj and jessica mcleod uh but fear not i am recording on my phone i recorded the rest of that one on my phone thank you to my double a batteries that serve me unwell um and i am currently facing the sun i have the mic windscreen that's on my microphone attached to the bottom of my phone to try to knock out any wind that you're hearing so we'll see when i edit this how that's going anyways i'm rambling we got a great show for you today and i'm live from daytona bringing you coverage all week long but today on victory lane we have a very special guest and that is one matt humphrey now you guys may have heard his name before he's worked in nascar for over a decade he's moderated press conferences that you may have listened to maybe he's helped you meet your favorite driver maybe you've seen him on your television screens maybe you've read his work who knows What I know is that you are going to enjoy our conversation here today because it was a great one. But before we do any of that, I got to back up for a second and we got to throw it over to our way back segment of the week. Today's episode 136, and that means Papa Siegel's paying homage to somebody that piloted the number 36 in his time in NASCAR. Without further ado, take it away, Papa Siegel. Thank you, Duve, and welcome everyone to episode 136. The great James Brown, the singer, not the sports anchor people, was known as the hardest working man in show business. A similar moniker might be given to Ken Schrader, who may be the hardest working man in NASCAR. The Fenton, Missouri native had a 763 race cup career spread out over 29 years. He won four races, all for Rick Hendrick, but the real story of Schrader is his ability and desire to race anything on four wheels. He's raced and won in the Xfinity Series. He's raced and won in the Truck Series. He's raced Arca. He's raced Pinties. And chances are that if you're a regular at your local short track, you may have seen Ken Schrader racing there. Of all the big-time racers I've seen, I think Schrader tops the list in terms of getting pure joy from racing win or lose. Even in the latter half of his 60s, and in the midst of a pandemic, he was scheduled to compete in more than 70 races in 2021, and there's no sign he intends to slow down anytime soon. And with Davy's indulgence, I want to close today with a melancholy farewell to one of the greatest American racers of all time. You've heard me mention in prior episodes that Al Unser was my favorite IndyCar driver of all time. We recently lost Big Al, and I've been remiss in not mentioning it until now. One of my earliest childhood memories is of listening to the radio broadcast of the Indy 500 on the floor of my room in 1970. The ABC broadcast of the race was on a tape delay basis back then. When Unser led all but 10 of the 200 laps and won his first of four Indy 500s. He still holds the record for most laps led at the Speedway, but he was far from an Indy-only specialist. He was a USAC champion. He was an IndyCar champion. He won the 1985 24 Hours of Daytona, and he was also an IROC champion. Above all, Al Unser epitomized one of my favorite racing adages. To finish first you must first finish. He was perhaps the greatest racer I ever saw at getting the most out of his equipment, not overdriving his car 
and giving himself a chance to win, which he often did. He passed away on December 9th after a 17-year battle with lung cancer. Rest in peace, Big Al. That's all for today. Back to you, Duve. Thank you, Dad. Yes, uh, very good ode to Ken Schrader there, a man who will, can, and does race anything, and also a good ode to to Big Al Unser, one of my dad's favorite drivers. So RIP to Big Al and a good ode to Ken Schrader. Let's start off this episode as we always do. Were they good? Old fashioned, as I'm outside, but there's not really anybody near me, so I'm gonna shout. Hopefully that wasn't too embarrassing. All right, I mentioned it and I'll say it again. Matt Humphrey is one of a kind. He is a great guy. He's helped me with a ton in my career and he's done the same with a lot of other people in the NASCAR industry. And I got to speak with him for you guys, and he tells us about his career in motorsports, his life overall, which is a very, very interesting one, starting off as a kid in Ohio and growing into a man very, very young. He'll explain taking him all over the country, sports reporting, and now having permanent residence out on the West Coast working in NASCAR. Great guy, great conversation. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Here's my conversation with NASCAR track communications guru, Matt Humphrey. A real honor and a pleasure today to welcome on, I say, not hyperbole, a legend of the game. Odds are, if you have been at a NASCAR race, if you work in the sport, you have seen this man, you have talked to this man. And if you're watching this, wherever it goes out on video, which is nowhere actually, you recognize the background wall of fame. It is the man, the myth, the legend, Matt Humphrey. What are you doing talking to me on this wonderful Valentine's Day? Am I your Valentine? Uh, Davey, for this hour, I am your Valentine, and wow. you're my Valentine. Wow. So you, know, I've, you, should, you should feel special about that. Absolutely. I do. I yeah, do. You, you should feel special that you're spending it with me, too. I mean, like you said, I, if I can talk to Ice Cube, I, I don't know if I can talk to you, but I made an exception today. Well, that's good. You know, I'm, I'm glad you are able to stoop to my level. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Well, uh, for those of you that don't know, Matt Humphrey has been in NASCAR track communications for years. He recently celebrated his 10th year at the company. We're going to get into his career, his time at the bar logo, all that and more. But first, let's start off with the Bushlight Clash at the Coliseum because, Matt, I say that you played an integral part, but you pushed back on that. You played a small part in making that event happen, but you were out in L.A. for months seemed like years and you were tweeting pictures of the track as it was getting constructed as it was getting deconstructed in recent days what the, what was the role that you played in the clash at the coliseum from a track communications perspective which honestly is some of the most important in terms of a pr perspective from a, from a track communications perspective i had the i had the great opportunity and honor to be able to highlight the amazing work that was done by literally hundreds of people behind the scenes to make the Bushlight Clash, the Coliseum, a success. I mean, it was, it, you know, truly it was a it, it was a large cast of folks pulling in the same direction that really made that event go. I mean, you start all the way at the top with Ben Kennedy's leadership and his vision for that event and working together with Steve O'Donnell and the folks at NASCAR R&D to really, you know, just make make this vision a reality. All the all the hours and meetings that it took on the back end just to get the track designed. You you, you look at folks like you know Derek Muldowney and Marty Fluger with NASCAR Design and Development, who actually had to physically you know you know design the racetrack yeah. and then and, and then oversee the construction of, of the racetrack and 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 all and get it done in about uh, about six weeks time. Which was, I mean, to me, an engineering marvel. I don't know Not how just, they did it. Yeah, they, they were able to construct the, the racetrack in about six weeks' time. Racetrack held up wonderfully mm-hmm. under uh, under the conditions. And oh, wait! By the time we take the green flag for Sunday's Great American Race, the Daytona 500, the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum will be restored to its previous condition, which is which was fantastic. But a lot, a lot of a lot of my workers trying to tell their story and what they and and how they were able to accomplish such an amazing feat. But then you look at the folks like Amy Lupo, who was, uh, you know, she just joined our team on the marketing side um, 
right, you know, to, to start this project, she spent years with ESPN and the X Games, had a lot of experience working in the LA market and also working, uh, you know, working with Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. She was a great and tremendous addition to our team who really, I mean, spent hours in meetings and, and helping coordinate the entire marketing effort. And then there's a guy like Dave Allen, who the president of Auto Club Speedway, who has a race himself to, to prepare for here in, in two weeks, the Wise Power 400. But all, this, all the while, he was, he was managing the entire operations side of, uh, of the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum track. I mean, I don't know when the guy slept. Uh, yeah. you know, the, but the fact that he was able to do that I mean, I mean, again, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving a ton of people out, but you know, there's, there's a, a ton of folks that were behind the scenes that really helped make that happen. And, and, and ultimately, hats off to our drivers and our teams who came out there and put on a tremendous show uh, with the debut of the next gen car. And so you look at all the work that's gone on the past two or three years with the development of the next gen car and, and seeing, you know, in John Probst and his team, what they have done to work with the entire industry to get, get us to a spot to where we could debut a brand new car on a racetrack that nobody knew what was going to happen. Yeah. Unbelievable. And, but then their drivers executing the way that they did and putting on a great show for our fans. It was, I mean, it was entertaining. Uh, and then, and then there's the entertainment, right? Those, you know, <laughs> we talked, we were talking about ice cube and pitbull and that, you know, you just don't snap your fingers and have those, have those acts show you up at your, at the Coliseum. Uh, you know, that took a lot of hard work you know, from, from our friends like Phil Metz and Daniel Owens, who work out of Los Angeles, who, who work closely uh, with the entertainment industry as part of their roles with NASCAR to help make that a reality. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, I, I never thought I would have the the opportunity to write a press release about Ice Cube performing at a NASCAR race, but guess what? It happened at halftime, no less. Yeah, I, I, and I'm the beneficiary of that. And so, yeah. I, and so to say, you know, that, that I, I played an integral role that uh, on on the Bushlight Clash at the Coliseum, I think, is certainly a misnomer because so much other, so much else went on behind the scenes. I just was able to help tell that story. I hear you. Well, you did a really good job of that, so we commend you for that. And uh, I was calling you before I booked my flight to head out there, and I was saying, well, you know, my boss is kind of on the fence at the moment. I hope I get out there, but regardless, I'll see you when I see you. And you hung up the phone. You said, we're going to say that I will see you in L.A. And voila, Matt Humphrey puts it into the ether. It happens. So I'm glad that I was able to get out there, and I'm glad that everything went off. Without a hitch, just real quick before we move on from the clash, mm -hmm. it sounds like you were just as surprised that everything went off so well as it did because e even you, right? Like, you work for NASCAR. Of course, you're going to say it was great, but it genuinely was. But even some part of your mind may have been thinking, okay, this is such an interesting idea. It's such an idea that's never been done before in today's modern age and this modern era. Something is bound to go wrong. Something's going to happen that we didn't think about or we didn't plan for, but it seems like nothing did, which is remarkable. Well, I, I, you know, from that standpoint, part of the appeal of the story, and this is a good, you know, I, my, my job is to work with media to help them, help them tell the story of our sport. And so you want to provide media with great stories to tell. And part of the appeal of the story was that NASCAR has never done anything like this before. I mean, at least in the modern era, racing inside of a, an iconic football stadium in the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. And, and you know, in, in journalism school, they, they, they tell journalism students there are two types of stories. There's that dog bite bites man story. Happens every day. It's not news. On the other hand, there's the man bites dog story. Guess what? That's going above the fold on the front page. It's going to lead off every newscast. Yep. Well, guess what? NASCAR racing at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum in the heart of Los Angeles with Ice Cube and Pitbull performing at the race, that's a man bites dog story if I've ever seen one. Mm -hmm. And and the Los Angeles media took to it right away. So that, that was part of the appeal. The great unknown was part of the appeal of, of the story. That being said, knowing the work that was going on behind the scenes, you knew this was going to be successful in many respects. Early on, from a media from a media standpoint, I saw a lot of buy-in on this story in the Los Angeles market from the time we made the announcement in mid-September. 
I mean, usually when I've worked in that market in the past with Auto Club Speedway and trying, I mean, it was like, yeah, you know, Edson Fontana, you know, we didn't really want to cover the story of NASCAR. Here, I mean, they were like, wow, what? NASCAR is racing in the different. heart of Los Angeles? Yeah. It, this is this is this is a cool story. And then from that point, I mean, our next really major touch point after that was after uh, NASCAR championship weekend in Phoenix. And we passed the torch literally to the Bushlight Clash at the Coliseum by taking Kyle Larson to Los Angeles. We had I was like 35 media members from Los Angeles that, would, that came out for that tour. Wow. And it's like that's at that point in time, this it really clicked with me that wow, that we have something special in our hands. And then from that moment to the mid middle of December, when we had their groundbreaking at the Coliseum and seeing everybody come out and participate for that with Michael Waltrip uh, helping out from NASCAR on Fox, I was like, okay, we're, we're really in for something good. And then as we started seeing the numbers pour in from our ticket buyers, we found that 70% of our ticket buyers for this race were first time NASCAR ticket buyers. Yep. I mean, there. I mean, NASCAR has more fans per capita than any other major met metropolitan area in the United States. But a lot of them have not been up to a racetrack. Guess what? They came out to the to the Coliseum, and guess what? They were younger and more energetic. It was so good to see. I mean, Dave, you you were there. All the young people yep. that were there in attendance. They were young, diverse. Awesome. I mean exciting excited to to be there and experience nascar for the first time guess what that's mission accomplished that's one one of the major major uh, goals we want to reach with this event is to to bring our bring our sport to a new audience who hasn't been able to enjoy it in person before and i think a lot of those first time ticket buyers will become second and third and fourth time ticket buyers at all of our events down the road so i you know it's really cool to see I hope you're right. I think you will be right. And um, it was just an incredible event. I agree with everything you said. We had to talk about the clash because, as I said, you, you played a role in that. But we're not here to talk all about L.A. and all about racing. We're here to talk about you, my friend. And your role <laughs> is you help manage track communications for NASCAR. And I know that you focus with some tracks on the West Coast now, being Auto Club Speedway, Phoenix. You also handle Iowa and Kansas Speedway. So managing track communications, which is your role, mm -hmm. can you explain to that, explain that in layman's terms as to what that means and what your role specifically entails on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, my primary responsibility is to interact with the media in these local markets uh, to, to help tell the story, not just of NASCAR, but of also, also, you know, tell the story of the racetrack and how the racetrack is, is, is a vital part of the community. And so uh, here in Phoenix, you know, I'm based out of Phoenix, but manage those tracks that you mentioned in addition to the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. And so I'm, you know, we're constantly working with, with local media members to, to secure coverage for our upcoming races and also talk about the, the scores of events that are going on each month uh, throughout the, throughout the course of the year. Um, you know, we, you know, you know, you know, Case in point, you know, you know, Phoenix Raceway, uh, you know, we 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 are very active here in the community uh, through the Arizona Accelerator Charities, and so working with uh, our track president Julie Giese to help uh, share that story, and then we have some other big events coming up uh, throughout the throughout the year that we we help uh, spread the good word on. So that that that's that's part that's part of it. And Kansas Speedway as well, you know, Kansas, you know, last year when I first when I first started this role. Uh, and we were, at the, you know, in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, really helping publicize a, a, um, a COVID testing drive uh, at Kansas Speedway where fans could come out to the racetrack, uh, take a COVID test, uh, get their, get vaccinated, I should say, get vaccinated. Um, you know, they can receive their COVID-19 vaccination and take laps around the racetrack in their personal vehicle. So, you know, doing things like that when NASCAR isn't in town, is, is also a vital part of, of my job. But, you know, you know right now, uh, my focus is on the Wise Power 400, which is coming up at Auto Club Speedway. It's the return of racing to the two-mile oval at Auto Club here uh, on February 26th and 27th. And so my focus now is to take the media that covered us there at the Bushlight Clash at the Coliseum, inviting them back out to cover us 
uh, at Auto Club Speedway and really, uh, uh, you know, tell the story of NASCAR's return to Auto Club and really at the, st the start of the regular season for NASCAR. Of course, it's the Daytona 500, the Daytona that starts the regular season, but as you and I both know the real, the real, the real regular season starts at earnest week two. Yeah. Uh, and that's, uh, and that's going to, and we're really excited about that coming up uh, at auto club speedway at the end of February. But then two weeks after that, we're going to have uh, the Ruoff mortgage 500 uh, at, uh, at Phoenix raceway. And uh, we've got a lot of excitement uh, planned for our fans here in the Valley uh, coming up for that weekend as well. So just trying to get everything ready and together for that. Talk with our local media, get them excited and provide them with plenty of coverage opportunities for our races. Well, we're looking forward to the West Coast races. And you, as you mentioned, are based on the West Coast. But that is not where you started, Matt. I remember a few years ago when I was kind of first getting into the business, we had a very long phone call. I picked your brain on a lot of things. You were super generous with your time and your advice as you're being right now. And somehow, some way, I found those notes that I took, the questions that I asked, and we're going to kind of regurgitate some of those here in this conversation today. So I know going all the way back, you went to Mount Vernon for your education and you majored in music and communications. And one may think, well, those two don't really go together, but Matt Humphrey's not your average Joe. This man was a big tuba player. Do I, are my notes correct from all those years ago, Matt? <laughs> Your notes are your notes are correct, and I was I did I did go to Mount Vernon Nazarene College, now Mount Vernon Nazarene University, on a music scholarship. Uh, played the tuba, and uh, I was uh, I I thought at that point in time I was going to, be, going to become a music educator. I also dabbled with the local uh, the uh, the campus radio station, um, WNZR, but uh, two things developed. One. Uh, I, I found out I didn't really want to be married to my instrument and two, I was a really bad Nazarene. And so I ended up, uh, I ended up dropping out of school after six months. And, uh, and then, oh, my, my, my ex-wife, uh, was pregnant. We had two kids within 13 months of each other. Wow. Uh, life. That's a life change. Quick. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, life, life hit, uh, pretty hard and pretty fast. Uh, and then all oh, both of both of the kids had some health issues at, in their early stages. So, I mean, I needed I, I mean, I was literally doing anything and everything I could do to put food on the table. And that was working at a sewage plant mm -hmm. in Fredericktown, Ohio. Uh, and then after as all the bills were mounting up uh, working at the sewage plant, I, I needed to get a second job. And that led to my first foray into journalism. I answered a, a one ad in the newspaper. That, that, you know, before you went online to, to look for job openings, you went to the newspaper and the one ads that sh should age me a little bit, but uh, it does. <laughs> yeah, it does. You can see the gray hair. Um, but I looked, I looked at, looked in the one ads, found uh, an ad for the local newspaper. They're asking for someone to come to the sports department and answer the phones at night. That's like, that should be an easy second job. I love sports. Uh, I, I think I could do that. So I started there within a week, the sports editor comes up to me and asked me, I said, do you know how to write a story? And I said, I can start sentences with the capital and end them with a period. Uh, aside from that, who knows? And so they assigned me to go cover a, a high school football game that Friday night. Uh -huh. And uh, I, that football game was the, the, the Lexington Minutemen at the Clear Fork Colts in Belleville. I still Ohio. remember. Wow. I still remember Lance Dill was the quarterback for the Clear Fork Colts that night. My God. And Cl Clear Fork won. I go back to the newspaper. I write my story on deadline. We put the paper to bed. And I remember going home and telling my ex-wife, this is what I mean, it was, it was just that kind of like an eye-opening moment. I was that the adrenaline rush I received from, from uh, you know, turning around a story on deadline was, was, was exhilarating. And so over the course of the next few years, I, uh, I worked full-time at the sewage plant. And then I also worked close to full-time at the newspaper, vol literally volunteering to cover anything and everything. And that, yeah. and that included auto racing. Um, there was a mid Ohio sports car course was right up the road in Lexington, Ohio. Uh, and then we had a local drag strip called pacemakers uh, that was in Mount Vernon. And so I would go down there and cover the bracket racing 
as often as I could and write stories about the racers. Uh, but that was, yeah, that was kind of how I, I got my start in this whole deal. So you mentioned um, starting a family pretty young. That can definitely change the trajectory of your life and change your mm -hmm. life in general as a whole. Uh, you mentioned it to me back then. You mentioned it now. This is something that you're not shy about. I know you've mentioned it in interviews before. Is there a way to even describe how your life changed at when you were that age, that young? I mean, dropping out of school is a big decision, obviously, in and of itself. And raising a family is a huge, huge commitment. But it seems like that really did change the entire trajectory of your life and your career. Is that fair to say? I, I would say so. I, it forced me to grow up overnight. And literally, I had to, I had to, you know, at that point in time, my focus is on my family and what could I do to make sure that they had what they needed to survive. Uh, I mean, it was like you're you're literally literally, you know, wondering how you know how you're going to make it through the next day. Uh, and so, but you know, at least for me, a switch flipped, and and I really I, I really went from being a really immature teenager to being somebody who had a family to care for overnight. And, and I took that responsibility seriously um, and, you know, did what I had to do in order to, to make that happen. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not saying I, I didn't make mistakes along the way because my, my goodness, we all, we all, you know, learn hard lessons, but you know what, that's how you grow. And, and quite frankly, for me, that was a great educational experience every step of the way. Um, and, and, you know, I wouldn't be the person I am today without uh, having gone through those experiences. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned I, I had a lot of the stuff that you mentioned before in my notes about the sewage plan, about volunteering, about covering high school games. We're going to get to all that, but we got to start with the sewage plant. So I know that during that time is when you mentioned you started covering high school games and you were working almost two full time jobs at that point for multiple reasons. As you said, you needed to provide. You also enjoyed working in the sports field, but at one point you stopped your work at the sewage plant, not because you got sick of it, because you got sick from it. Exactly. Explain that story for us. Well, if you ever played the if you ever played the old video game Oregon Trail, one of the one of the uh, one of the diseases you could catch was dysentery, and guess what? I caught dysentery working at the sewage plant, and that to me was a huge wake up call. Uh, yeah, after being hospitalized for dysentery for a couple nights. You'll 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 quickly want to readjust and recalibrate your life expectations. I don't know what that is, so can you give us a, a quick primer? I'm also probably just aging you even more because I don't know what that is. So sorry. I I will just I will just say look it up on the Google. Uh, okay. the, I, I will say the side effects from that were not pleasant, uh, and uh, I will it was I'll leave it at that. But dysentery uh, dysentery is 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 no fun. Um, but that being said. That being said, um, you know, I was, I mean, literally I was burning out because I was burning, I was burning the candle at both ends, working close to 80 hours a week. Um, I would come home from the new, I would, my work day would start around 7 a.m. I get to the, when I get to the sewage plant and I would get off around 3, 3.30, go home, have a quick bite to eat, go down to Mount Vernon, go into the newspaper, work a shift, cover a game, write a story, write a few stories, and I would get home about 11 o'clock to midnight. And then in, in order to be able to wake up for work the next morning, I would sleep on the couch, light turned on, TV turned on so I wouldn't fall into a deep sleep. So that way I could like literally jump up and go to work the next day. Yeah. And so that was, I mean, but I, 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 I had a, a bigger picture in mind and I knew that the, the hard yards that I was putting in would ultimately pay off. It would just take a, it would take a, a lot of hard work and fortunately it did pay off. Well, it sounds like you didn't get too much sleep, which uh, I can relate to, but the, the lengths that you went to, to do what you did for all the other reasons that we mentioned, which is to provide and, and to find a calling in your career. Well, when was the point where you ended up, you know, saying, okay, now that I'm done with the sewage plant, I, I want to pursue journalism full time. I want to go into this field. I want to be in this field. I'm going to commit to it. If it kills me, fine. But this is what I'm going to do. When was that point for you? Well, that was at that point in time. That was the time I, you know, I was in the hospital. It's like I had to give this a go. So, I mean, I gave myself about six, I gave myself literally a six month window. 
And I, I was going, you know, my, my, my ex-wife and I sat down, had a, had a conversation. It's like, okay, let us, let me see what we can do here. Started, you know, sending my clips out that any and all newspapers that had job openings posted at, at that point in time, the in, in, internet was in its infancy. Uh, uh, and so job boards started posting uh, uh, job openings along the internet. And so literally I had a, a GeoCities webpage where, where my articles were posted. Uh, some of my better articles were posted. And so I just started sending that around to different outlets around the country. And uh, a newspaper in St. Joseph, Missouri, the St. Joseph News Press picked up on it and they, they called me for an interview. And then they brought me out to St. Joseph for an interview. And so this would have been in October of 1999. And a couple of weeks later, uh, I was I was in a U-Haul with my family packed up, uh, and we were heading west to St. Joseph, Missouri, birthplace of the Pony Express, the death site of Jesse James, and the also the the the, the childhood home of Eminem. So I mean, wow. it, you want to talk yeah, you want to talk about uh, a, a a real uh, change in venue? That was a change in venue, but there. In, in St. Joseph uh, at the news press, I knew one of the reasons I, I, I decided to take that job is I knew that there was a NASCAR track being built uh, in Kansas City, in the Kansas City area. So I wanted, to, I wanted, to, I wanted to be part of that, part of that, part, part of the, you know, be on the ground floor of that. And so I knew there was, I knew that was a good auto racing area. There's a lot of auto racing interest. And I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, be part of that in some way, shape or form. So as it turns out, the publisher of the St. Joseph News Press was best friends with a couple guys named Stan and Randy Herzog. And those guys had a Bush series team at the time, now the Xfinity series, but they're, they owned the number 92 Chevrolet. Hmm. They had raced ASA for, for, for a few years. They were in, uh, they were in off-road trucks before that, but they had this guy driving for them that nobody really, really knew anything about. And so the, the publisher came up to me and says, Matt, you know, there's this driver driving for my buddies that nobody knows anything about, but they could really use some pub for the race team. Would you mind writing some stories about their race team before and after all their Bush series races? And I said, sure. turns out it was none other than seven time NASCAR cup series champion, Jimmy Johnson. I think I've heard who, of him. I, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And so literally I, I would have to call Jimmy before and after all of his races and, and write a short story in the St. Joseph news press. And so I remember the first time I talked to Jimmy was after he failed to qualify for the Daytona Xfinity race there. I believe it was in 2000. Uh, but that was, but then like weekend and week out, I would literally called Jimmy before and after his races wow. and I would publish the stories. Well, that led to my next opportunity. I went to the publisher and I said, Hey, would you mind if I started a motorsports page every week in the sports section? And he said, sure. If you write it, design it, edit it, it's like okay, challenge accepted. So uh, I didn't know I didn't know a lick about graphic design. I was I, I could barely write, so editing was not my forte. I didn't think at the time, and so uh, that forced me to develop new skills, which uh, helped me blossom as a journalist overall. And that actually led to my next opportunity in Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, where they hired me as the assistant sports editor for design. Uh, the design skills that I learned along the way putting together that uh, motorsports page really paid off. So I went there, I think it was in 2004. And I went there with the caveat that I still got to cover the races at Kansas Speedway. Cause I had covered every race at Kansas Speedway, whether it was NASCAR, ARCA, uh, IndyCar, it didn't matter. I was always there at Kansas Speedway covering the races. And so they said, sure, you can still go down to Kansas City and cover those races. So I was there for about 14 months uh, until I got a the best recruiting email in the history of recruiting emails. And that was from Lynn Hoppus, who was the executive sports editor at the Orlando Sentinel at the time. And it was a one set, it was a one sentence email. It said, dude, how would you like to work in Orlando? Question mark. I wrote back, sure. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, within a couple of weeks, I was on a plane heading to Orlando to interview. And then voila, uh, packed up the family. We moved to Orlando and uh, and I was excited about that because for two two reasons. One, I mean, Orlando is a 
great newspaper, great reputation. Van McKenzie was the assistant managing editor. He was a legendary journalist uh, from, you know, going all the way back to his times, the Atlanta Journal Constitution and the National Sports Daily. He, he, he ran the place. So that, I mean, he brought a stellar reputation to the table, but also I had, I knew I had the opportunity to work with one of my idols in, in motorsports journalism. And that was Ed Hinton, who mm. was, uh, was writing for the Orlando Sentinel at the time. It's like, wow, this is really cool. I'm going to have to I get a chance to work with one of my heroes. That is cool. So, uh, so that was, uh, that was, that was a fantastic opportunity. So I had, uh, you know, I, I jumped at that chance and then, Boom. Uh, the rest is history. A lot of stuff I want to get into there. Let's start with Jimmy first. Um, I know that you guys obviously met back in the day before he was Jimmy Johnson, but then blossoming into the role that, that you ended up holding at NASCAR and worked your way up there and now where you are now. I'm sure that that relationship really helped your guys' working relationship doing all the winning that he did and you doing all the traveling and all the managing that you did, it makes it easier when you have a good working professional relationship with the people that you work with and have to work with because not only are you working, but you're also working for each other and with each other instead of against each other. So I'm sure that having that relationship with Jimmy of all people who is one of, if not the nicest guy ever and also happened to win more than anybody in this last era of NASCAR that probably helped things for both of you guys as your guys' careers kind of blossomed. Well, I'll tell you this much about Jimmy Johnson. What you see is what you get. I mean, he literally is, he is one of the nicest human beings that you'll ever get a chance to work with professionally and personally. And he, you know, he really is the same, same guy I met way back when he was driving with the Herzogs that you see today. And all the best to him and his family as he continues his career yeah. uh, in the in the NTT IndyCar series. But what a what an amazing human being, for starters. What what I thought for for me was for a cool full full circle moment was my first season with NASCAR was the uh, 2011, mm-hmm. and that marked the 10 year anniversary of September 11th. And as part of that, uh, I was assigned to go to the Pentagon, and Jimmy was touring uh, the Pentagon uh, uh, to, to, uh, as part of that anniversary before we went to the White House to meet with President Obama. And so I was there and I, I, that was really the first chance I got to see Jimmy in years. Uh, and so I, I, I had the opportunity in the, in the, uh, in the Pentagon just to hey, thank him <laughs> for, uh, for, for taking all of my annoying calls back in the day. He remembered but, you, right? He had, to. Uh, you know, I don't know if you remember me or not. He's, uh, you know, yeah, no, but you know, he does. I think looking back, he does remember, remember yeah. me from that time, but that again, just a nice guy who was very patient with me uh, during, you know, because I was a young journalist at the time and we, <laughs> we, we first started working together. I mean, literally I would call him after his best moments and his worst moments. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember talking to him after he had that big crash in Watkins Glen, the good and the bad. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and so um, but he was always gracious with his time, always very, very polite, always gave you good responses. But, you know, then I had the great opportunity to work with him uh, post-race after he won his, 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 his final two championships, which was to me was, was really cool. Yeah. And, and seeing how, how much those moments meant to him uh, was, was really neat. And, and seeing him get the accolades uh, and seeing how the public kind of, because the public was kind of against, if you remember the public, yeah, had, they had a, they had a negative, they had a negative vibe toward Jimmy Matt, Johnson. you know, people hate winners. The they just do. Correct. But watching how the public, as by the time he won his seventh championship, seeing how oh, yeah. he was embraced. I love uh, but, but that they, they loved him. And that was cool to see. Not everybody gets a chance to see that type of transformation. And J- Jimmy certainly deserved it because he, uh, he was, he's uh, really, uh, you know, you know, just a good guy through and through. So seeing that was, was for me, it was really special. Um, so, but you're right. But, you know, this, you know, David, as you all know, this sport is built on relationships and, and, you know, and not just with, 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 you know, with Jimmy, but the people who worked with Jimmy uh, throughout the years, you know, you know, looking, looking at, you know, you know, with, with, with the folks who, who worked PR on his, on, with Jimmy, you know, Amy was fantastic 
Amy Stock. And then you look, you know, with Christine Curley, who was with, with Jimmy for several years, but getting a chance to, to work with those professionals as well. I mean, that's, that was a, a, a great opportunity for me, but it's all, it's all about those relationships and getting to know people. And when you're, when you're working with these people week in and week out, I mean, you have to find a way to get along and, and you all know that you're pulling, pulling in the same direction, right. Is to help grow and promote the sport. So that, that, that always helps too. But, you know, I'm just really blessed to have had that opportunity, not just with Jimmy, but with all of our drivers throughout the, throughout my time here at NASCAR to help tell their story, to help, uh, to help promote our sport and help grow it, uh, for, for the next generation. You had one full, full circle moment at Kansas back when you were working in the Midwest and you had another full circle moment, uh, with Jimmy having to be with him with his last two championships. What else? Is there any other full circle moments that you've had or that you want to have at some point? I feel like there's gotta be, you you seem to be the full circle man right now. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this much, Davey right now, my focus is on taking it's cliche, but taking it one day at a time mm-hmm. and, and really looking where we are right now as a sport. I'm not really, I'm not really interested in kind of tying back into the past, but my, my focus is forward and where the direction this sport is going. Because right now, I mean, as you saw with the Bushlight Clash at the Coliseum and with the sellout crowd that we're going to have for the Great American Race at the Daytona 500, and, and with the sellout crowd we had last year at Phoenix for the NASCAR Cup Series Championship Race, there's a lot of momentum and energy in our sport yeah. right now. You know, we have crossed the threshold into a new golden age of NASCAR where you have young drivers competing against great experienced veterans and, and this next gen NASCAR race car. I mean, all the, all the elements are, are, are aligning for us to experience a new period of growth. And, and quite frankly, that's where my focus is right now is what can I do for my personally, what can I be doing to help grow the sport and to promote the sport and to share that enthusiasm. And, and that's right quite frankly, my focus right now. Something else you mentioned in your uh, answer about Jimmy that I want to touch on and that helped you get the job in Nebraska was the transition from print to digital. And Mm -hmm. it seemed like it happened quick. I obviously am kind of too young to to recognize that because I grew up in the digital age. But I know, and this is something that we talked about those, those few years ago, Matt, that was something that you were really good at. You, you adapted quick, you adjusted quickly but clearly it was not easy and that did not happen overnight as well. So can you take me back there and how you were able to adjust from working in the journalism field and working in media from when it was just basically print publications and filing your story on deadline and writing a lot and newspapers Mm -hmm. were the talk of the town to transitioning into the digital age with the dawn of the internet. And now we're on a podcast we're on a Zoom meeting. You do everything via email. And it sounds elementary now, but back then none of these things existed and you were kind of dealing with them and learning them as they came about. Well, I I certainly learned to be adaptable and flexible. And that that's been, you know, really a key to to my advancement is to be able to be just to be nimble. And and part of that, you know, back in the early days, you know, I, I first really realized the power of the internet after I got that first job in St. Joseph. But when I started writing some uh, motorsports articles, I had, a, I had a column called In the Crank Case. And I would start getting emails from, from people like readers in Canada who saw my stories in the St. Joseph, Missouri news press. And I was wow. like, what in the devil? And that's when I learned about J-Ski. And so J- ah. if, and so if J-Ski, if J-Ski linked to one of your articles, you would get email from all over. Oh, if you had something wrong, oh, guess what? They would let you know about that too. Uh-huh. I remember Tony Liberati, who was the crew chief for Jimmy and that number 92 car. I mean, I had something wrong. I forget what it was, but I had something wrong uh, about uh, uh, about something in, in one of my columns. And so he wrote me and he actually called me and said, hey, no, yeah, you got this all wrong. And he explained it, walked it through. But that's when I realized, okay, the internet has some potential here. But, uh, but as my career progressed, when I got to Orlando, that's when the print, the print business started falling into decline. And, and, and so I realized if I'm going to have any type of future in, in journalism, I'm going to have to really embrace digital storytelling 
And so I started a NASCAR blog uh, at the Orlando Sentinel called uh, NASCAR Nuts and Bolts. And through that blog, I was able to learn about search engine optimization, uh, what worked, what didn't work, utilizing social media. I joined Twitter. I joined Twitter shortly before the, the Rolex 24 one year. I forget what year it was, but I remember following the Rolex 24 via Twitter. And it's like, okay, wow, this is a great, this is a great new medium. So I, I, I learned how to u- utilize social media to help boost the performance of my blog posts that I had yeah. at OrlandoSimple.com. And so as that developed, uh, my bosses took notice. And so they asked me to take what I was, you know, take that approach I was taking with NASCAR Nuts and Bolts and then teach our writers who covered college football, the Orlando Magic and, and, and high schools, how they, you know, how and teach them how to um, harness that power for those core products in, in the Orlando yeah. sports section. So I transitioned then into a, becoming a, a digital sports editor and and learning and really learning along the way as I was teaching others how to be comfortable with uh, with the digital and social media that was really taking hold. And so and that kind of transitions to how then I ended up in NASCAR. I was at Daytona International Speedway covering the roar before the 24 and Jimmy Johnson was testing a sports car and he was in the media center at Daytona and I had a, I had a webcam on my laptop. I have in my how, notes webcam yeah, story before yeah, Trevor yeah. Bain won the 500. That's so, right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it was 2011. And so I had the webcam on my, on my laptop, turned it around and I live streamed Jimmy's press conference uh, on OrlandoSentinel.com. And so Stu Hodum, who was working with uh, NASCAR communications at the time came up and said, Hey, look, we've got this position at, uh, uh, in our department to help manage nascarmedia.com. I see, we see you have some digital skills. Uh, would you mind applying for that? So I did. Uh, and then, yeah, Trevor Bain turns around, wins the Daytona 500. And by, by the first week of May, I was working at one Daytona up in the, on the, on the fifth floor and uh, working for the, the sport that I love. And, and man, what, how I can't, I, I'm literally the luckiest guy on the planet to have had, uh, had that good fortune. I can't believe we've gone this far and I, and I forgot to ask. So that's bad on me as the interviewer. What got you into racing? Because I know that I read that there was a small dirt track that was like right by where you grew up and you'd go to sleep and kind of hear the lull of the cars. But it wasn't a dirt. It wasn't a dirt track. It was actually, it was, it was, I believe, it was an asphalt track. But I never got the actually never got the visit. It was Canton right. Motor it was Canton Motor Speedway, which is now a gravel quarry. But Canton Motor Speedway would have racing every Friday and Saturday night, and we lived less than a half mile uh, from the speedway. So you would and this hear is the Canton, roll. Ohio, the home of the Pro Canton, Football Hall of Fame. Right. Th- yeah. That is correct. That is correct. And so you you would hear the engines all through the night, you could go to sleep because the engines were roaring. So I bet, I mean, I was like, oh, this, this sounds really cool. I'd love to, love to go there. But my parents told me it was too rough of a place for me to go. Mm-hmm. So, so when, when the parents do that, you know, I was just a wee squat that, that you know, it's cool. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so I would start watching, I would start watching, you know, auto racing on television, any, anything and everything I could, I, I could consume on TV, which, which wasn't much at the time. Uh, I remember my first exposure to NASCAR was seeing Cale Yarbrough as a guest, as a get a special guest on the Dukes of Hazard. That was my first wow. uh, my my first exposure to NASCAR. But uh, other than that, I would watch the uh, I watched the Indianapolis 500 via tape delay every Memorial Day weekend on uh, on ABC. But that that got me hooked. So anytime racing was on television, I would watch it. I would maybe not. I, I, I didn't understand what was always going on, I, but I, I, I gravitated to on the NASCAR side, like Cal Yarbrough, uh, you know, and then and then with uh, Bobby Allison was was another one of my favorites uh, when I was a when I was a kid. And then you know, on the Indy, on the IndyCar side, I was always always pulling for Mario Andretti, who is you know, uh, you know always the heartbreak story at Indianapolis. But yeah, yeah but. It was still, I mean, it was, it, it just became, it just became a passion of mine. Uh, and so I, you know, I was hooked. So you had the background in sports reporting and then you end up going and working for NASCAR one day, Tona mm-hmm. on the digital side of things. And that kind of morphed into a PR and a public relations type of role. 
did you ever want to stay on the, on the reporting side and the journalism side, or did you seek out going the PR route? Was that kind of a conscious decision for you or something that kind of you happened upon? I, you know, it was, it was, it was, I just wanted to be part of the sport. And so if that was, I mean, if that was on the PR side, if it was changing tires, I think I just wanted to find a way that I could be personally involved in, in the sport. And so for years, my involvement was as, as a reporter and being able to, to tell stories at the various media outlets in which I worked. But then when the opportunity to work at NASCAR came, that's like, wow, I can actually work for the sport. And, and so that was, you know, so again, it was just, you know, myself asking myself the question, how could I make a difference? And that was the, at that point in time, the best opportunity for me to make a difference. I, I mentioned this to you in our other conversation, but something that I always marvel at and whenever you do it, I'm, I always smile because now that you're working on the West Coast and I'm on the East Coast, you know, I don't get to see you do it a ton anymore. But when you are running a press conference at the podium, you are in total control. You, you heard of NASCAR 06 total team control. That should be named after you because you you captivate everybody in the room. And I don't know if it's just me, whatever. And like, I'm not even kissing your butt. Seriously, like I, I listen to a lot of press conferences. I participate in a lot of them. And whenever you are conducting them, for whatever reason, I'm captivated captivated by how you control the audience, control the subjects, control the flow of the press conference, which just means that you're really freaking good at your job. Did you end up, you know, seeking that out and figuring out, okay, this is something that I need that I need to be good at. I'm gonna try to harness this skill, or did that kind of come to you naturally? Because as I mentioned it all that time ago, and I'm sure you know. You're really good at that. And that's something that I think a lot of people can learn from, including myself, how to captivate your audience while remaining in control of the situation. Well, it, it starts with confidence and not overconfidence or cockiness, but it just starts with confidence. But the but it didn't come naturally. And I'll, I really, it, it all started uh, as a trial by fire. So if you remember back to Phoenix, uh, when, when Clint Boyer, is chasing after Jeff Gordon uh -huh. uh, after their on-track incident. Uh, I had never moderated a press conference before, but uh, Christy King, who was managing our racing communications team that weekend, she turned to me and says, Matt, you have the media center. And she went off down to the garage to help manage any Hello. communications fall off. <laughs> so literally, it was just me in the media center. And so I had the drivers coming in. I had to moderate the press conference. So, uh, I just need to make things go smoothly. And so that really was my first foray into muttering a press conference. But, you know, I, I was very, I'm, I'm very fortunate each step of each step of the way in my career to be able to have great men mentors. And so, you know, being able to learn from folks like Carrie Tharp, Christy King, uh, you know, Kirk Colbert, John Schwartz, uh, folks who have uh, been, uh, you know, leaders, friends and mentors along the way, uh, I was able to learn a lot from them and how to conduct yourself when you have the room. Mm -hmm. And so when you have the room, then, then you need to, you need to take that responsibility seriously and, and help, uh, and help things go according to, to plan. So when you, when you have a press, when you're holding a press conference, the key is, you know, the, the role of a moderator is to make sure the media members are able to ask the questions uh, of the drivers and the drivers can respond in a, in a way which services the media. And so that's, it's pretty simple, but you just have to know, I mean, it, it just takes a little bit of practice yeah. and, 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 and nuance to, to help that flow. But again, but that it certainly was not by design. I was just able to learn from a lot of great people in order to, uh, to, to develop that skill. No, I hear you. I read somewhere that uh, one of your favorite races to work and to cover is the Rolex 24, but one mm -hmm. specific year, I believe it may have been 2012, uh, you met your now wife, Kristen. And That's correct. you had one job that day, and that was to make sure that she got what she needed. And you've been basically doing that ever since. <laughs> Absolutely. We met at the 2012 Rolex 24 uh, yeah, Herb Branham, who was managing Grand Am Communications at the time, came up to me and goes, Matt, we've got this gal coming in to do our transcripts. Keep her happy. So, yep, I did just that. Mission accomplished. And you still are. Uh, 
I, oh, I'm trying. I'm trying. You know, you know, well, it's Valentine's years, Day. Go spend it with her. I, you know, I, I, I plan to do that. We're going to, yes. we're going to, we're going to go out and have a, a nice romantic dinner this evening. But no, it's, uh, I mean, again, that's, I, I have garnered countless benefits from this sport, being able to work with some of the greatest athletes ever in the history of sports, whether it's Richard Petty or Jimmy Johnson or Jeff Gordon. And I've been able to go to some of the greatest venues in sports, Daytona International Speedway, Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. But none of that compares to having met my wife at that race there, the 50th anniversary of the Rolex 24. And my, by golly, if, if, if we're still around for the 100th anniversary oh of the Rolex 24, I'm already putting our names in for the Grand Marshal. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think, I think, I think we'll be leaders. I think we'll be leaders on the grid for that position. If we're still kicking at that point. So that'd be pretty sweet. Yeah. You have my word. If y'all are around and I'm around, I will be there and I will do everything in my power. If I have any to make sure that that happens. Cause that story is phenomenal. It's amazing. Uh, it's amazing. And it, what an amazing experience. And it's, it's, it's really cool. Uh, you know, to see, uh, you know, all the places that we've been over the past 10 years and, and, and she's been able to experience a lot of these, a lot of these milestones at the racetrack, uh, with me. So that's been, that's Very been, cool. been really cool. But, uh, yeah, uh, here's to, here's many more years together. Well, you guys have, uh, gone out West together. Cause as we mentioned, you know, you were based on the East coast at Daytona and you made the move out West to Phoenix. You guys have been there for what, at least like a, a year or so now at this point, right? Uh, we have been well. Actually, it's been about six months. We came out. Really? Uh, yeah. We we relocated to Phoenix in August of uh, last year. So it was. Uh, so yeah, do the math. I'm not okay. good at math. I'm a word, I'm a word guy, but uh, <laughs> but no, we have been we have been uh, we've been in Phoenix since August. So it's been really a whirlwind so from the, from the time from the time we arrived here in Phoenix. You know, getting everything together for. Uh, we had we had some big announcements right away when I when I first joined the team here at Phoenix, and then it's yeah we're we're still getting adjusted to the area. Uh, when we moved in, it was 114 degrees. Sheesh. Yes, it was yes it was a dry 114, but 114 in any humidity is still 114. Dry, wet, whatever. It's 114. That's right. Triple that's digits right. is triple digits. Yeah. So that's that's been an adjustment, but there's a lot of great nature around here. You're within a you're within an hour to our drive of you guys love to hike wonderful. you've gone some really cool yeah. places internationally too right absolutely yeah we're uh we've been uh, my wife through her job and she works a lot of international events uh in fact we're going to go back to st andrews again this summer ah. for the for the open championship awesome. uh, we were there we were there the last time the open championship was contested at st andrews so really looking forward to that that's a magical place and uh, we uh, look forward to going there. But we've been, you know, I've been to the Cricket World Cup of all things. I mean, the Cricket World Cup in England. Wow! I, I will say it was one of the more interesting sporting events I've had a, had a chance to attend. But that was that was really neat. But uh, we always like to go down to Mexico and Latin America and, uh, and enjoy some places down there as well. So yeah, really looking forward to our our upcoming travels. West Coast, best coast. Can you confirm? Scoring confirms. I mean, if if Ice Cube if Ice Cube didn't confirm that for you at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, Amen. I don't know. I don't know. Will yeah, absolutely, he did. I mean, yeah. everybody always says. You know, you hear from the drivers too, right? It's like you know, I come out on the East Coast and the tacos are terrible, and then I go home and they're amazing. So the food also on the West Coast is just to die for. Is is great food, and in particular, you know, here in Phoenix, we have some of the best best cuisine uh that that money can buy and so definitely definitely take advantage of the opportunity when you come to the valley of the zombies to, to sample our our many culinary wares that we have on offer yes all right i got a couple more for you and i'll let you run i uh i was actually kind of struck that when you took this job i kind of asked you why why you're making this change it's a big move moving out west and all these different things and i found the reason that you told me a bit interesting. And that is that you want to become a track president one day. And Absolutely. I did not know that about you. So can you tell us why that's something you want to do and why you're passionate about making that move? 
Well, I mean, I like I love to promote our races, right? And so being a being a being a track president, you know, promotion is is one of your top priorities. And so I I, I feel that that fits my strengths, uh, and and I, I look forward to develop my, my skills. And quite frankly, I get to work with some of the best track presidents that our sport has ever known. So, I mean, Julie Giese here in Phoenix. Former guest on the podcast. Thanks Absolutely. to you coordinating the conversation, yeah. by the way. Julie, Julie, Julie is one of the smartest human beings I've ever been in contact with. And she is, she is, she is a tremendous mentor. And so is Dave Allen at Auto Club Speedway and, and seeing the work that he's done uh, with that staff during a really difficult time over the past two years during the pandemic. And, and his coordination both with, with Auto Club Speedway and the, at the Bushlight Clash at the Coliseum. And then Pat Warren uh, in the Midwest uh, at Kansas Speedway. Pat is just a great guy, passionate about his job, passionate about auto racing and NASCAR, passionate about our military. Uh, but seeing, you know, being able to learn and absorb all uh, from, from, from those mentors, to me, is, is going to be a great training for wherever my career goes from here. And, and, and hopefully one day that is as a track president. And, uh, and I can't wait for that opportunity. Speaking of that, you led me right to one of my last questions. It's been over a decade now that you've been working for NASCAR. And I'm sure that on some days it still feels like a job and you're clocking in, you're clocking out. And on some days it feels like this unbelievable fairy tale dream job that you get to work that little Matt Humphrey would tell, would tell you today. That's crazy. It's amazing that you're doing that. Over 10 years now at the company, I assume that this is where you want to be. This is what you want to do. And, and more days than not, you have that feeling of, wow, this really is the dream that I'm living. Well, I mean, you, I mean it's, certainly, it's certainly a dream come true. And I mean, the fact there, there's been so much hard work put into making it to this point that, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done. And there's a, there's a lot of work to... Uh, to tell the story of this new generation of, of drivers that are coming through. Uh, I, I'm, it's so cool seeing, seeing, you know, drivers like Kyle Larson and Ryan Blaney, Chase Elliott, Bubba Wallace, Danny Suarez, guys that were literally starting out their NASCAR careers 10 years ago when I was starting yeah. at, at NASCAR. Yeah. They, I mean, they were, they were the NASCAR, uh, the NASCAR next class way back in the day, Alex Bowman, Corey LaJoy, those, those drivers were all just young bucks that were just starting out in NASCAR when I was starting at NASCAR. So seeing them come up to the ranks, but then also getting a chance to, to see guys like Martin Truex Jr. and Kevin Harvick and Kyle Busch really, I mean, you know, at the peak of their careers and seeing how they perform and helping and helping, you know, showcase some of their talents uh, to our media. That's a lot of fun. And so uh, to me, I think there are a lot of stories to tell. And as long as there are stories to tell in our sport, I'm more than willing to participate. You'll keep doing a great job of it. And uh, we will keep doing a wonderful job of reading it and bearing the benefits of your work. By the time people are listening to this, I'll be in Daytona. Are you heading down there too? I am not, but I will be heading to Fontana, California for, yes, sir. Uh, for the Wise Power 400 weekends, our 25th anniversary uh, next, uh, next week. And at Auto Club Speedway, we're going to have a lot of fun and excitement. Collective Soul is going to be performing. And uh, we'll also have some other surprise guests for folks uh, as we NASCAR makes its regular season debut uh -huh. in Southern California in 2022. Return to Fontana will be fun. I'm sure I'll yeah. see you later on in the season. Yeah. Definitely at Phoenix, of course. Um, and like I've told you a bunch before in private, but I'll say it publicly too. You've been one of my biggest supporters, one of my biggest mentors. Uh, you've helped me through some rough times. You haven't been afraid to tell me how it is sometimes, which everybody needs. So I've said it privately, I'll say it publicly. Thank you for all the help that you've given me and continue to give me all the guidance, uh, all the support, everything like that. It's been, it's been awesome to get to know you. And I hope that all the people listening have gained a greater appreciation for you and your role with NASCAR too, because your story, my friend, is one of a kind and, and so are you. You're the man, keep rocking it. I appreciate you, I appreciate your time. And we'll see you next week out in Fontana at Auto Club, my friend. Take care, JD, safe travels to you. And we're back. Hope you enjoyed that conversation, guys. As I said, Matt is a great, great guy. One of a kind. He's helped me with a lot, as I said there at the end. And he continues to. So, Matt, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all the help you've given me. And thank you most of all for what you've done for the sport. Because, man, we would not be here without you. And 
That is not hyperbole. Guys, it is the Daytona 500 race week. You may be able to hear some cars in the background. Before we talk about that, I just got to touch on the clash. And I know I didn't have an episode last week for you guys. It's because, well, I was busy and I was packing and I'm getting ready to rock and roll down here to Daytona. And I got home from the clash and then I had work and, you know, you don't want to hear my excuses. I do want to say, though, uh, Tanner, if you've made it this far and you're talking to one of my friends on Tinder, I think it was Tinder, maybe Bumble, I don't know. If you're listening this far in Tanner, one, thank you very much for your support. Two, the gal you're speaking to, she's a wonderful gal. Please give her a shot. And three, thank you for your support of this show. I'm sorry that I was slacking, as you said, but I'm trying to pick up my game, pick up the pace for you and for all my wonderful listeners. All right, let me talk about the clash real quick. It was one of, if not the coolest events that I have ever covered and been to in my time covering NASCAR and motorsports. It was unlike anything that I've ever done before. Probably anything that I will do in the future unless we continue doing this and go internationally and other stadiums. It was so different and it was so fun and I I just really enjoyed myself because of that. And not to say that this job and this passion project is is bad because it's not, but it does get monotonous at times and it's the same things a lot of weeks. It's the same places, it's the same people, it's the same subjects. The clash was just different. And the drivers felt that, the teams felt that, everybody there was into it. And so was I, it was it was phenomenal. It was an incredible weekend, an incredible race, an incredible track. And as cliche as it is, NASCAR kicked ass. They, they absolutely hit a home run. So Matt Humphrey, if you're still listening, you did a great job in helping prepare for this event, as did Ben Kennedy and everybody that had a hand in this. And I mean everybody, because it was no small task. So the clash was great. But now we're on to bigger and better things. We're here in Daytona Beach, Florida at Daytona International Speedway. And it is Daytona 500 race week. Man, I'm ready to rock. The 2022 season officially will kick off on Sunday, February 22nd with the 64th running of the Great American Race. By the time you're listening to this, you'll know who's on the pole most likely. But as of this recording, we are unsure because qualifying has yet to happen. And there's not too much to preview because... A, we don't know the lineup. B, we don't know who's going home and who's made it. And C, we don't know if anybody's going to backup cars yet, again, as of this recording, but there's so many question marks around the next-gen car and the inventory and the lack of backups. Is Jacques Villeneuve gonna make the field? Is Greg Biffle gonna make the field? Is Noah Gregson gonna make the field? A lot of questions, not a lot of answers. I will tell you this though. As of now, and I'm knocking on wood vigorously as I'm saying this, rain looks okay. And you know what? I'm not going to say that. The weather forecast looks okay. Hopefully it stays that way because the last two years, the Daytona 500 has been marred by Mother Nature. She can't seem to get off our ass. But hopefully she stays off this weekend and we have a good show on Sunday. Good number on the television ratings and we can go from there. So I'm excited for the Daytona 500. It's going to be a phenomenal weekend, a phenomenal show. It is every year. It's Daytona. There's nothing like it. And I'm excited for you guys to see all the action play out. Please, please be sure to follow me all weekend. You know where to find me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. You know the deal, at Davy Center and at FrontStretch.com as well. We're posting a lot of cool content there on the website, on the social handles, and on the YouTube channel as well. But that'll wrap things up this week, guys, for episode 136 of Victory Lane 2.0. If you like what you heard here today, please do me a favor. Leave a rating and a review. Subscribe to the podcast. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud. Wherever you get your podcast, we should be available there for your consumption. And if we're not, drop us a line and we'll try to rectify that issue for you. Signing off from Daytona International Speedway. We'll catch you back next week for episode 137. I've already got a couple cool guests lined up and we will catch you on the flip side.